Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and host of the Capitol Beach. On this end of year highlights reel episode of the Capitol Beach, I'll be sharing clips from six different interviews that I conducted over the course of the year. I think these pretty well synopsize the kind of interviews that we do and the kind of discussions that we have on the Capitol Beach. We're going to be talking to a couple of members of Congress and then a bunch of agency folks about the work that they do and how coastal policy and procedure are generated out of Washington, D.C. and what those impacts are in the field. I'll start with a clip from our very first episode. It was an interview I did with Senator Tom Carper of Delaware and the ranking member of the Environment and Public Works Committee. We discussed the Water Resources Development Act, which his committee was responsible for developing, and he had an opportunity to tell us how you actually get legislation done in D.C., not just what the policy is, but how do you actually make it work. Here's Senator Carper. You know, I, I can't think of a more divided partisan Congress than we've seen in the past couple of years, and certainly in this year, and yet... WERDA, the Water Resource Development Act, just seemed to be a hugely bipartisan, cordial bill. You guys passed it out of your committee, um, I think, unanimously. It uh, passed the Senate, I think, 99 to 1. It mm-hmm. passed the House um, unanimously. unanimously. Yeah. So what's what's the secret? What's your what's your, uh, what's your your secret sauce? Uh, Joe Biden uh, was a senator for many years. He and I are close, close friends. And uh, he used to say that diplomacy, all diplomacy, is personal. Mm-hmm. All diplomacy. He was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, he's all, I've also heard him say many times, all politics is personal. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that, um, you know, the Army Corps, the, uh, the Department of the Army includes a, a bunch of branches, but one of them is the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for, among other things, about, I think, 99% of the waterways in, that lead into our harbors where mm-hmm. so much of our cargo and, and goods move, coming and going. But the... Uh, a guy named uh, Ricky James Dale, and he's, he's a brand new, uh, not brand new, this is his first year to be the uh, uh, Ricky Dale James. Do I have that right? Yeah. Ricky Dale James. I, I, they call him R.D., but he's the uh, assistant secretary of the Navy for uh, um, uh, civil engineering. Yep. When he, he got it... Uh, uh, nominated earlier this year, and I got to know him personally mm-hmm. and to work with him. My staff worked with him through the nominating uh, process. Um, he was confirmed, ultimately passed through our committee unanimously, went through the the, the, the full Senate uh, very well. First, uh, his first couple of weeks on the job, we invited him to come to Delaware to visit the uh, the, the our part of the, uh, the, the coast. He's from the um, sort of the southern, southeastern part of the country, but not along the beaches, right. but just to acquaint him to, to mm-hmm. the beaches and and uh, have um, have them get a, a taste of what it's like to, to live on on the East Coast. Sure. The uh, that personal touch, and getting him uh, to know him personally, for him to get to know us, to actually see and observe personally what uh, the, the work that needs to be done, the work has been done, and how we can maybe do it in a more cost-effective way was hugely important. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just at the end of the day. Senator from Delaware, that's me, the senior Democrat on the committee, working with the chairman of the committee, who's from Wyoming. Right. right. The chairman beaches Barasa. of Wyoming. <laughs> are memorable, I'm sure. <laughs> but but uh, he and I uh, uh, work together uh, on a lot of issues. And he may not have cons- been as much interested in the beach uh, provisions of the of the uh, Water Resources Development Act, but he cared a lot about the uh, clean drinking water provisions mm-hmm. and the wastewater sanitation provisions. So. Um, the, the so the three of us, John Brasso, the chairman, um, uh, 
Artie James, the mm-hmm. secretary, assistant secretary, and, and yours truly, kind of all, did, we did this together. Yep. Our staffs worked very well together. And what happens is when you have um, the uh, the principals, in this case, the chairman of the committee, the senior Democrat on the committee, and the top person from the administration that said, let's do this together, let's work together, amazing things can happen, and that's what happened. Later in the year, I had the opportunity to talk to Congressman Garrett Graves from Louisiana. He's the he, he was the chairman of the Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee on Water Resources and so also played a very important role in passing the Water Resources Development Act in 2018. He also worked extensively on a bill called the Disaster Recovery and Reform Act, which addresses how communities can prepare for and respond to uh, disasters such as hurricanes, storms, wildfires, and other things. Here's Congressman Graves talking about some of the policies he's worked on. Well, here at the Capitol Beach, we we do like to get into some uh, sort of more policy wonky details. A lot of our audience are are, uh, interested in some of the details of the the code. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about some of the policies that you have or, or, or bills that you've worked on that help address some of these issues. I, I flagged uh, potentially the word bill that you helped lead last year. Um, you've also, I've heard you talk about the Disaster Recovery Reform Act that really both of these are do a number of things, but I think try to drive investment and resilience before a storm as opposed to after a storm. Um, I'll sort of turn it over to you to see, you know, if you want to talk about those bills or anything else, talk about some policy that you've worked on. Sure, sure. So, so as you know, there's study after study that shows that for every $1 you invest in resilience activities or mitigation strategies, you get three, four, six, seven dollars and ninety-three, dollars or $11 in cost savings, depending on whose report you, you believe. Um, and, and so what we've tried to do is, is pivot from this entirely reactive strategy of the federal government, whereby we spend billions of dollars after a disaster and instead try and lean in and, and, and spend millions of dollars before on resiliency projects. And so we, we have passed laws, and I want to be clear, these are laws today that help to reduce the cost share for a state or a county or a parish government in the event that, um, uh, that there is a uh, disaster. Normally you pay a 75, excuse me, a 25% non-federal cost share. But if you've actually carried out mitigation strategies before your disaster, you can get a discount. You can get a 5% reduction. We have established um, this program called um, uh, pre-disaster mitigation. The program was established. We have substantially increased the funds whereby um, we we have automatic spending based upon the, the total disaster cost in the prior year to where your pre-disaster mitigation, where you're providing FEMA funds to states and counties and parishes to carry out protection and resilience projects on the front end before uh, disasters come. And so that way you can get that payoff. We have tried to knock down the walls between, for example, FEMA funds under the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program and Corps of Engineer projects, whereby previously it said that if you get funds from FEMA, you cannot use them on an authorized Corps project, even if there are no funds available. And we all know there's a $100 billion backlog in Corps of Engineer projects. So clearly we've got to try and figure out how to pull more funds together. So we made limited progress on some of these housing and urban development, community development, block grant, disaster recovery funds, and knock down part of the wall there to where you could use them on core projects or FEMA projects. We knocked down the entire wall on FEMA funds to where you can use them on core projects. We just, we've got to figure out how to make sure the dollars are being spent on the highest priority projects and stop this silliness of building walls between funding sources and preventing you from building the projects with the greatest return on investment. Lastly, 
I think one of the biggest challenges that we have before us is the organizational structure of the Corps of Engineers. You, you have a $100 billion project backlog. There's some great people over there. And as I said, they've made progress in the last two years. But it's really difficult to believe that there's value added to having the Corps of Engineers mission, their water resources, their civil works mission within the Department of Defense. I think that this is priority number 384 for the Secretary of Defense. When you think about all the other things that he or she has to deal with, this needs to be priority one, two, or three for a for a cabinet uh, level official. And so, uh, we did put a provision in the law that that requires the National Academy of Sciences to look at a different organizational structure, a different project delivery, a development delivery structure. The White House released an innovating government report where they talk about taking the core out of DOD. And um, I, have, I have come pretty, pretty biased to this concept that what we really need to do is take FEMA and take the Corps of Engineers and create an independent agency. I don't think that the that Homeland Security brings value added to FEMA's mission. I don't think the Department of Defense brings value added to the Corps of Engineers mission. So that's long term something that we're looking at uh, and, and moving in that direction. Over the course of the year, I also had the opportunity to talk to a number of different uh, public servants, folks who work for federal agencies that manage and uh, restore our nation's coastline. There are probably a dozen different federal agencies that play some role in coastal restoration, but perhaps none bigger than the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, one of my favorite episodes this year was a joint episode that I did with the the hosts of the Waterlog podcast, Howard Marlowe and Dan Janolfi. We had an opportunity to go speak uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers Head of Policy and Planning, Joe Redigan and Eric Bush. Eric Bush was a, a temporary assignment, but had the um, was kind enough to join us and uh, really enjoyed talking to them about uh, some of the major coastal resilience plans that the Army Corps is working on. Here, take a listen. So I think one great example of this that ASBPA often talks about is the North Atlantic Coast Comprehensive Study, authorized and funded following Hurricane Sandy, really looking at how to improve the resilience and improve projects and improve coordination across the entire North Atlantic <clears throat> Division. There's a similar study being that was authorized and, and funded and is currently being implemented in the South Atlantic Coast. I know there's a, a Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study. I just... I guess this is sort of an open-ended question if, if you guys would like to comment on some of these major coastal, regional coastal studies that are have happened, are undergoing, or sort of in the works, and sort of the value you see in them. Are there things that we should be taking, we as a coastal community should be taking away? Are there specific l items or, or lessons learned that the core uh, finds valuable in these studies? So sort of an open-ended question. What do you think about these? I, I would guess by, I would start by saying that... <coughs> They've probably pushed us, the core, more into our uncomfortableness than ever before, and it's and the, this uncomfortableness should have happened years ago. So, mm -hmm. it's it's forced people to work together. Um, you know, historically, the core, we still have some thinking out there where it's pre nineteen eighty six, where it was one hundred percent federal, and and you know, the core would get a mission and go and get all the money and go do projects, but. So, but that's not the right way to do business. I mean, we're ultimately, we're, we're not the end users of, of any of these projects or majority of these projects. And um, these comprehensive studies and these comprehensive authorities have really pushed everybody to really get to the table, talk about 
what their interests are, what their needs are, and how they actually work together to put together solutions. So, you know, and I think like the Living Shoreline is an incredible uh, example of this. Um, you, you see these premises that folks have always, nature's already already done, but it's been difficult to sort of put your finger on from an engineering perspective. But once you started really getting into it, you realize, hey, this isn't that hard that we can actually do these things. So it's created this conversation. And then it's also made people realize, well, what, what can they live with? So, you know, putting hard structures necessarily or soft structures, somebody has an opinion on those either way. So, you know, so but by doing these regional uh, studies, you're able to then look at these things holistically and then how you can learn from what others are doing and marry up to what they're doing. So. Yeah, I'm really excited about the regional studies that we have done uh, and the one that's underway now. Uh, you know, the North Atlantic study was just a great example of, of the Corps of Engineers delivering a sort of a regional plan for, for the northeastern, uh, the northern Atlantic. Uh, and we're definitely looking to leverage the tools and the processes that were developed out of the, out of the North Atlantic um, Coastal Study into, into the South Atlantic Coastal Study, which, as you say, Derek, is, is just now fairly recently underway. We've also got some, some comprehensive planning done in the Gulf Coast already. You know, we've done mm -hmm. some, some work in Louisiana and the state of Mississippi uh, so uh, in response to prior disasters, uh, prior hurricanes, storms. So now we have the South Atlantic Coastal Study underway, and it's just a great opportunity to, to fully leverage all of the Corps of Engineers' great technical competencies and, very importantly, the power to convene. You know, that's one of the things the Corps of Engineers has is the, is the power, the opportunity to bring disparate agencies and stakeholder groups together to support, uh, you know, some common interests, because I think there are common interests, uh, you know, affecting our coastal areas, uh, clearly. So, um, you know, to me, one of the, uh, the worst outcomes we can have from a, from a comprehensive study like is underway right now for the South Atlantic is that we have an important stakeholder or agency whose technical knowledge, uh, whose information, whose tools, whose perspectives on the coastal processes, uh, the problems and challenges that we face in our coastal areas not effectively incorporated in that study. That would be a very bad outcome to me. Uh, so it's easy to say that, but it is a significant challenge for the Corps of Engineers to do the outreach and coordination and communication uh, in order to make sure that we're, make, we're getting all the input from our, from our stakeholder community, uh, from the local agencies who have the, the local information, and also from the, the larger regional uh, state and federal agencies have a significant role in, in uh, coastal resiliency. One of my other favorite episodes this year was my interview with Renee Orr at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Renee was the director of Marine Minerals Program and actually the Office of Strategic Services over at BOEM. Uh, she has since retired and we wish her the best, but it's going to be, she has big shoes to fill over at BOEM. Uh, but the Marine Minerals Program manages offshore sand and sediment resources that are often used to build uh, or restore coastlines, beaches, and barrier islands. Talking with Renee, we had a, a chance to discuss some of the bigger projects that uh, BOEM has provided sand for. Uh, re some really fascinating projects going on in the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere. Can you talk about some of the projects that you guys have helped support? I think some of this is interesting in the, the, the theoretical and the sort of the conceptual, but 
putting the sand on the ground, I think, is a great way to identify um, how you guys are helping. And I got to say, your, your website has is got some great statistics on there. I was pulling some of this up earlier. According to, according to your website, you have pulled uh, the total sand allocated from 1995 to the present is 152 million cubic yards. I mean, that's astonishing. Um, you've helped restore 339 miles of shoreline, um, you know, just really large volumes of sand, you know, miles of coastline that you've helped restore. Are there any sort of projects that come to mind as really, you know, cool or interesting or big that you want to talk about? Sure, yeah, we have, um, yeah, all of our projects are cool in one form or fashion, I would say. But, <laughs> we love um, all our children equally. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Um, I mean, the, the largest project that's taking place right now is in our is in the Gulf of Mexico, um, offshore Mississippi and Alabama. Yeah. Um, it's the Mississippi Coastal Improvement Program, the MISSIP, okay. uh, and it's restoring Ship Island at the Gulf Islands National Seashore. Um, it's Park Service property, um, and it, part of the restored area is called the Camille Cut, where Hurricane Camille cut Ship Island in two in 1969. So that was 50 years ago. And the activities happening today are really to try to help to restore that area and the protection that those barrier islands provide to the coast of Louisiana and Alabama. Um, it's a significant amount of sand, 19.6 uh, million cubic yards uh, from both federal and state waters. And so when you, the statistic that you cited of 152 million, million cubic yards of sand that we've conveyed so far, Right there, that's all, that's over ten percent yeah. um, of that total. Um, and as I said before, the the amount that we have been conveying and the number of conveyances is just uh, increasing as as we go forward. All right, if I can jump in, so nineteen point six million cubic yards for this one project. I'm a political science by background, so I don't I'm not a geologist or engineer, but I, I did a little bit of research to figure out what that actually meant. Um, so for our listeners. A dump truck, a standard federal, a standard you know operational dump truck, holds between ten to fourteen cubic yards. <laughs> so you're looking at uh, you're looking at over a million dump trucks worth of sand. And then because I wanted to geek out even further, I said, okay, what's really big? I grew up in New York, so I said, what is the volume of the Empire State Building? And of course, on Google, you can find out anything you want to know. Um, the volume of the Empire State Building is one point four million cubic yards. So this one project in, in the Mississip is putting on the size of 12 Empire State Buildings worth of sand on the project. So to give you perspective, over a million dump trucks, 12 Empire State Buildings, this is a lot of sand. Just really fascinating work these guys it are doing is. there. It is. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of sand, and, and that's not... Um, that's not the only project that's going on in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we've got another one, uh, Caminata Headland, um, which is uh, 11.3 million cubic yards, and that's all OCS sand mm. that's being used. Mm. Um, that's uh, the, that project is about 100 miles south of New Orleans. It it is another um, barrier island uh, mm -hmm. restoration project. Um, these barrier islands provide critical protection to the infrastructure, to the wetlands of Louisiana. Uh, but also to all the infrastructure down there. Uh, and this one in particular provides some um, some critical protection to Port Fouchon, which provides, it, it, that port is the gateway for almost 20% of 
of the country's oil supply that's destined for refineries, uh, and there's one highway to get in and out of Port Pichon. And this project provides the protection uh, for that critical infrastructure there. One of the most important roles the federal agencies play in supporting our coastal communities is gathering coastal data and doing coastal research. A couple of my podcasts this year dealt with federal agencies that are doing coastal science. Um, The first was with uh, Mark Osler, who is at the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, and he talked a little bit about what NOAA is doing on climate resilience and how really how NOAA got involved in the climate resilience uh, efforts. How have you seen from the resilience side, I know NOAA has a lot of original research around atmospheric, you know, is providing a lot of the the hard data around climate change, but from a resilience side, how have you seen NOAA shift and evolve and and really bring in some of those climate impacts into the work that they're doing? So you're doing, yeah, I, there's two parts to that in my mind. There, there's the idea, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take us in the wayback machine. Okay. Okay. So, President Thomas Jefferson in 1807, the way, way back, ordered okay, 200 plus years. Okay. Yeah, ordered the survey of the coast, saying that we are a maritime nation. We need to understand how to have safe commerce and navigation on our shoreline. So this is things like charting the coastal ocean waters. How deep is the water? Where are the hazards? Mm -hmm. Uh, It relates to understanding where is our shoreline and how is our shoreline moving over time uh, and then in modern times into things like vertical land motion. So that those concepts have been central to NOAA's science and services since our inception. Those foundational products are the foundation for coastal resilience in and of themselves. That if you are trying to address coastal resilience in a place that is maybe part of the developing world, or I had the privilege of uh, leading a project in Antarctica mm-hmm. where there's no vertical uh, survey control, there's no benchmarks, there's no nothing. And so it's very hard when you're trying to answer the fundamental question, where is the water? Where is the land? When is the water going to be on parts of the land where it's not usually at? Those things all require basic, basic science services that are foundational to NOAA's mission and have been for a long time. And so measuring of coastal water levels through our tide stations, monitoring and predicting the local weather forecasts, both sunny day and and storm systems, Tying into what we manage here is the National Spatial Reference System. So when you pull out your phone and you have Google Maps up and Google has a blue dot that shows you where you're standing on the Earth, that is the National Spatial Reference System connecting all the global GPS satellites to actually help you and help the Google software know exactly where you are, what direction you're facing, and where you're heading. So... If you're trying to build a coastal protection or to measure vertical change in a coastal marsh over time, you have to know where you are on the planet. Literally, it has to be mm-hmm. uh, an authoritative, unchanging reference frame. So those are foundational things that NOAA produces without which we couldn't do any of the more advanced work that we do. So that's one answer mm-hmm. is that our core services uh, enable resilience in the first place. And when we work internationally, we talk first and foremost about establishing those foundational data. Secondarily, certainly in our time of a changing climate and increased risks and impacts to the coast, uh, 
there are more and more products and services that are being asked for nationally and provided by NOAA, both around uh, new research and expanding our knowledge of how, why, where, and when sea level rise is changing, and then also into mapping flood risk and helping communicate some of that information into knowledge at the local level to aid decision makers in, in making good decisions for themselves. Hearing Mark talk about the basic science services and core services that NOAA provides to coastal communities tees up really nicely into the final clips uh, that I'll play for you today. And this is my interview with the co-chairs of the U.S. Coastal Research Program. The Coastal Research Program, as you'll hear, is a collaboration of all the federal agencies as well as academics and stakeholders involved in original coastal research. And I had the chance to interview Hillary Stockton with the U.S. Geological Survey, Julie Rosati with the Army Corps of Engineers and their Engineering Research and Development Center, and then uh, ASBPA's very own Nicole Elko, our science director. They serve as co-chairs of this collaborative effort called the Coastal Research Program and talked a little bit about it. You'll, the first clip you'll hear is, is Hillary Stockton just talking about the benefits of the Coastal Research Program. And then we'll go into a slightly longer clip hearing from both uh, Julie Rosati and then Nicole Elko, uh, or actually I think that's reversed, Nicole Elko and then Julie Rosati talking about a collaborative experiment that they did called Dune X, which is a during nearshore experiment uh, that was done collaboratively across federal agencies, across academic lines, at the field research facility in Duck, North Carolina. A really cool, uh, really cool experiment that's going on and continues to go on. Um, take a listen. Like the biggest values I think of USCRP is being able to coordinate across different federal agencies who have very unique different but complementary roles in working along the coastline, whether it's research, engineering, stewardship, or even development. And this way we're able to better define how we can address societal needs using science and basic research. What do you guys hope is the result of doing that? Where, where does this where does this change policy or procedure or help inform decision makers? Why, why are we doing this? One of the things that I think from a stakeholder perspective, um, do next will do, and we already see it happening, is it will, it will build a community of practice in a way that almost nothing else can, right? When, you know, it's like sending your, your team from your office on an outward bound excursion, right? It, that, that sense of being out in the field with others. Uh, we heard someone in our meeting today talk about digging trenches on the beach with some colleagues that were in the room there 20 or 30 years ago. And those are the lasting relationships. You know, people, people got married as a result of these past field experiments. We used to have them pretty regularly back in the 90s. So this experiment will provide us with great data, right? It's gonna, it's going to provide data for many masters and PhD theses mm -hmm. over the next decade or more. Mm -hmm. And it's going to help us understand processes and improve our models and, and help the sandbars move on shore, which our models can't do right now, right? So it's going to provide this fundamental science that we need to better understand our coast. But um, more than that for me is that it's going to build our community in a way that I don't think any other single thing that this program could do 
will be a social science perspective on our on our program. So really breaking down silos as well as providing that tremendous tremendous information. Yeah. And as Hillary mentioned a few minutes ago, um, if we understand beach recovery a little bit better, maybe we will be able to predict that hey, we don't need to go back out and rebuild the beach because we know in a year and a half it'll be back to 90% of what it was before the storm. So that's a real practical example of how results from the recovery part of the Dunex experiment will help us make better decisions. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and all the podcasts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I hope you've learned a little something this year. I know I have talking to all these really smart, really impressive individuals who work for the federal government and outside the federal government and are working to support coastal policy has been just a tremendously rewarding experience for me and I've enjoyed getting to share it with you. Do remember that American Shoreline Podcast Network operates on word of mouth. So if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please consider sharing them on social media, sending the links to your friends, encouraging folks to to join or, or subscribe to this podcast. And we look forward to talk, uh, presenting more podcasts and doing some more great interviews in 2020. Thanks very much and have a great new year. Bye.